Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Good morning, everyone. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. And would you pray with me uh, just once more? Lord Jesus, we always come to you as people in need um, of grace. And by your mercy, you have given us grace upon grace in your gospel, which saves us in your word, which speaks to us. And Lord, in uh, your church, which gathers to encourage one another uh, to be ever mindful of your faithfulness to us. We pray that you find uh, the reflections of our hearts, the words of my mouth, um, to be pleasing to you today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So there are sometimes, uh, maybe you've experienced this, when you come to church and there are sermons you can't escape but you wish you would. That's sermons on finances or tithing or circumcision or politics. All of these are biblical themes that come up uh, when we set ourselves to do what we do here at Sovereign Hope, which is called expository preaching, kind of uh, picking a book of the Bible, working through it, and letting the Bible uh, dictate the topic we're looking at, which sometimes leads us into topics that we otherwise would not want to address. And today's scripture sets a topic which may make you long for a sermon on tithing. And that is, if you didn't pick it up from KJ's reading, a primary theme in our book, or in our chapter today, is the theme of sex. Now, when we hear that, uh, we might have some uh, desires that rear itself in our head to to perhaps uh, blush at this, to minimize this with giggling, maybe to ignore it, uh, maybe to automatically say, I don't need this. Uh, But my hope is that we actually look at this humbly and seriously because God's word is good for God's people, which means regardless of your station in life, of your age, of what you're going through, we need this text. We need to understand what God is sharing with us. And there are two things that kind of leverage this need in our own world today. And that is uh, something that has happened kind of in the last 150 years, both in the church and in culture, and that is the over-sexualization of culture and actually the desexualization of Christian discipleship. You see, for most of church history, for most of Christendom, the church was actually bullish on the topic of sex. It wasn't hidden, it wasn't spoken of in hushed tones, it was seriously, respectfully, and openly discussed as part of what it means to follow God as disciples, and whether you were married or whether you were single, the application of that varied, but the truth was always talked about. But for some reason, in the 19th century, Victorian sensibilities kind of said, what you do in private, be it sexual or religious, is for you and not for us. We kind of got this sensibility that we don't talk about those private things in public. And so as the church became less public as a whole, part of that was that you were left on your own in isolation to piece together what it means to have a biblical view of sex. It was stripped out of discussion and discipleship and placed in the hands of the secret individual. But... On the flip side, as the church became increasingly mum on issues of sex and sexuality, we all know that culture is happy to speak up. And so as the church vacated that sphere uh, where we said God made it, God designed it, God has a plan for it, it left culture with this neat tool with no instruction manual that they quickly turned into a God with no limits. If you look out in the world now, it's everywhere. Sex is used to sell hamburgers and battery cables And yet it's deemed to be so central that it even dictates the pronouns we use to describe our own consciousness. It's everywhere in culture. And when we lose God's design for what God created, we often find ourselves in a world of confusion and pain. This is true in the context of Christian discipleship and this is true in the broader context of culture. But as we've seen so far in the book of Proverbs, the primary theme is that we ought not rely on our own understanding of anything. 
our best joy, our greatest satisfaction comes in seeing how God has designed not just individual aspects of the world like sex or money or relationships, but the whole of your life is part of God's plan. And we find ourselves seeking to align our, our hearts with that. And so what we're seeing in Proverbs is when God defines the boundaries of something, it is for our joy, even if it seems uncomfortable. It is for our freedom and flourishing, even if it seems constraining. And there are some of us in here today who live as if sex is, if not God himself, at least God's salvation. If only we could have access to this how we want to define it, then life will be good. Proverbs today is going to diminish and deflate that overinflated view. But then perhaps there are others of us, maybe those who grew up in the church, where we have this presupposition that sex is too scandalous for God to actually care about, and it's left to be dealt with and discussed in private. But the other thing we're going to see Solomon help us with today in Proverbs 6 is that he wants you to think more clearly and biblically about this for your joy. Some of us need to think less, some of us need to think more, but all of us need to think biblically about what is being presented for us today. And our big picture today is not simply that God has something to say about sex, though he does. The big picture is actually bigger than that. In fact, our main point today has to do with faithfulness to God in general. The big thing we're going to see today is that the wise, and I hope that would be you, I pray that is also me, learn to find joy in faithfulness to God and his design for life. That's what we've seen in Proverbs. God has woven wisdom into the fabric of creation so that we might live according to his design. And the wise learn that there's joy in that. And we're going to kind of break that down in looking at the two two sections of Proverbs 6 today. We're going to see section 1 in verses 1 through 14. In that passage, we're going to be warned of the dangers of faithlessness in the context of adultery. In that passage, we're going to see two things. We're going to see the delusion of lust, and we're going to see the destruction of the sexually foolish. But then in verses 15 through 23, we're going to see the delight of faithfulness. And that concludes with a call for you and for me to consider where we stand today. Now, before we get rolling into this text today, um, there are admittedly some hurdles, maybe hurdles that already caught you when it was read for you, and the hurdles I want to address right now so that we can hopefully uh, be unencumbered to listen to this as we ought. And so the first question you might have is, how do you listen to this text as a woman? We've been reading Proverbs, and it's written from a father to a son, and so all of the pronouns are masculine pronouns. In fact, in this text, we see a man being called away by an adulterous woman, and at the end, he is called to go and rejoice in his faithful wife. Does this mean that you're typecast and men are only to resist and women are only to provide? Uh, there is, uh, the, the book of Proverbs is written for our general wisdom. And so it is no stretch for you ladies to switch the eyes of the reader and to where the, there's a man being called away by an adulterous woman to think of the dangers that adulterous men might have, where the man is being called to enjoy enjoy sexual union with his wife, if you are a married woman, to consider the joy, or even a woman who longs to be married, to consider the joy that will come in intimacy with your wedded husband. And so feel free to, to read yourself into this text. Second, how do you listen to this text as a single person? On surface value, a large majority of you people in here cannot go home and apply this text very well. And that is a good thing. But there's actually three answers to that question. How should you listen to this text as a single person? First, this text is relevant to all of us because what this text is presenting is sexual foolishness. And all of us have experienced sexual foolishness, if not in deed or in thought, but in action. And what's held up in this chapter is actually God's relief for the sexually wounded and the sexually bruised. 
Second, this book prepares you for what may come. Remember, Proverbs is giving you knowledge beforehand. It's equipping you how to avoid potholes in life. And this book was used as a training manual for young men to go out into the world. And so pray that if you are in here single, however that might have come about, that this might actually prepare what God may or may not have for you in the future. And lastly, this text is not finally and ultimately about sexual intimacy. This text assumes that the the man, the boy, that the father is speaking to has a wife and is married. And that faithfulness to that spouse is joyful, is what it's presenting, that is good, and all other calls to any other lover is adulterous, misplaced, not how it was intended to be. But if you remember, if you've been with us the last few weeks, in Proverbs 3 and 4, Solomon, the father, has been building to this because he started to use romantic language so that we would understand as this general metaphorical son who the woman is we should want. We should want to embrace lady wisdom. We should want to hold lady wisdom. We should want to love lady wisdom. The application of this text is not only to be true to your wife, though that's the primary metaphor that's being used, but actually be true, to be true to God's wisdom revealed in Jesus Christ. To be faithful, to understand that God has provided your greatest need for your problem of sin in the gospel and he desires what is good for you. All calls to sin, we'll see by the end, whether sexual or not, are all adulterous calls. Calls which try to lure you away from the ever faithful God with promises of false joy and faux intimacy. But Jesus loves us and wants to bring us into intimacy, not only with him, but we see this in John chapter chapter 17, intimacy with the entire Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He has something better, a greater intimacy than you could ever imagine. And it's only applicable to us in the gospel. So we see to veer from God's word, to veer from God's wisdom, to veer from God's covenant of redemption is just like, how gross is sin to God is the equivalent of a spouse committing adultery. And sometimes we need to work that in, as uncomfortable as it might be, into our own understanding of sin. So with that said, uh, we're going to look at our first point today, which is the danger of faithlessness. The danger of faithlessness. And he's actually going to open this section by talking about the dangers of adultery by showing the delusion of lust. How we don't think clearly on these things. We've all perhaps been there when it comes to lust. And he's going to show us this today. Read with me the first six verses. My son... Be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, which is just the Hebrew word for the grave. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. So if you just look up, if you've got your physical Bible open there for you, look up at chapter 4, verse 26. One of the last commands the father gave to the son was to ponder the path of life. And so here dad is stepping in. He's going to help him ponder. He's going to paint this picture for him. And here he's showing us what we ought to ponder by highlighting the danger of the adulterous path. And we see this really interesting contrast in verses two and three, which portray a big aspect of theology. It shows your theology lived out in life. We see this contrast in verses two and three. Let's see if you could uh, see it. I'll read the, the full context starting in verse one. My son, be attentive to my wisdom incline your ear to my understanding. So this is similar. We saw this last week, right? This two-part admonition, uh, listen, incline your ear, and now we're going to get this reward. What is the reward? That you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Why? For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. So here we have, we're six chapters into this, this uh 
poem on wisdom, and we see when it comes to wisdom, when it comes to understanding, when it comes to discretion, we need our lips to guard knowledge. Why? Because the lips of an adulterous woman drip with honey. The lips of what is also the forbidden or strange woman drip with honey. And Words have been huge so far in the book of Proverbs, right? How many times have we seen this command to love God's words? We're to bind them on our heart. We're to adorn ourselves with them as with a crown. We are to cherish God's words of grace to us in scripture. But here with the lips metaphor, he's developing a new direction. Lips are for speaking, but lips are also for kissing. And when it comes, and what he's telling us here is that our lips are to guard knowledge. And what he's saying is that who you kiss or who you don't kiss betrays what you actually know. So maybe you've heard of the phrase kiss and tell, but biblically, all kisses tell something. What you're doing with your lips betrays your knowledge. Your love life betrays your theology. It communicates what you might say by showing what it is you do. To not kiss a strange or foreign woman shows that you know your faithful spouse. You know there is something better for you there than in what is strange. But to engage this foreign woman, as attractive as her lips may look, shows that what you know that looks like honey is not what it seems. It's false, honey. It's dangerous. And that's the true delusion of lust in this text, isn't it? And we've felt this, whether it's on a screen, whether we read it in a text message, we even feel it in our heart or perhaps on our skin. This temptation, when it is presented, this honey looks good. It looks sweet. And our mouths begin to water for it. But here Solomon says, Looks are deceiving. It's not what it seems. Now, I don't know if this is true. It might not be true, but it makes a good illustration, so don't debunk it later. The the rumor of how Greenland and Iceland got their names. Iceland's rather a pleasant place. It's beautiful. It's quaint. They've got weird-looking hot dogs. And you could go there uh, and enjoy it. But they didn't want a bunch of people there, so they said, "Let's, let's call it Iceland. No one's not really on the top of anyone's travel destination place. Um, It sounds inhospitable, and so they call it Iceland. Greenland, on the other hand, is a lot like Missoula in January. It's just, it's cold, it's frigid, it's brutal, it's not particularly hospitable. And they said, what if we make people think it's green? What if we call it Greenland, and when people hear it, they hear of this wonderful tropical green oasis. But then they get there, and they realize they've been bamboozled. And this is the kind of honey that this woman is peddling. She says, come to Greenland, it's going to be sweet. But you realize that's not at all what the reality is. You see, we all know foods which taste delicious for us, but aren't necessarily good for us. And it's worth it because it tastes good. We also know food that doesn't particularly taste great, but we eat it because it's good for us. And the health value makes it worth it. Make no mistake What Solomon is showing us here is that temptation to sin is neither of those. It neither tastes good, nor does it accomplish good. It is bad. It looks like honey. It is not. And the wonder of texts like this and the language he's using of sweet honey and smooth oil is that it speaks to our hearts because we've all felt this. The appeal of something on your screen which demands a second look or a hesitant scroll because it seems to satisfy. Perhaps the playful glances of a coworker or a friend or maybe the dangerous daydreaming of what may be. If I could just swap out characters in my life. If I could advance to another level. And yet, look at this text. What appears to be sweet is bitter as wormwood. Guys, is honey bitter? No. So it's not that this is honey gone bad. It's not that maybe you could find a woman with better honey 
This is no honey at all, though it looks like it. What looks to be soft and smooth as oil is sharp as a two-edged sword as it cuts you down and ruins your life. What seems to be straightforward contentment, finally and fully you will have found what you ever wanted, is a woman who wanders and knows not her own way. It's a life of never-ending chaos. It looks good, but it is a delusion. You see, our world looks for sexual freedom that is freedom defined and not according to God, but freedom according to yourself. They long for it because in sexual freedom, in the sexualization of our culture, they hope to find the path of life. But look at what it says. She does not know it. She can't provide what she cannot know. This lady is a sham but maybe you're still foolish enough, young enough to think, well, I could still call my shot and maybe the problem is something that I could overcome with my brilliance or my might. But the father's gonna lean in here. And it's here where we see not just the sham of lust, but we see the destruction of the sexually foolish. Read with me verses seven through 14. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So we have two um, relatively small magnets at our fridge. When you become a parent, maybe this is just me, you realize that the kind of magnets you have for your fridge matter. And like good magnets are meaningful things. And so I'm often, you know, testing the magnetism of our magnets. We have these two that are um, really strong, really salt, like those bulletins you get from school, like no problem, stick it on the fridge and it's good to go. Um, We've got those magnets and I often play this game where uh, I I try to see how close I can get them without them snapping together. And I feel like I'm, I'm a fairly strong guy and capable of resisting this. And yet there always comes a point where I'm getting closer and closer and closer and then They snap together. I have no control over it. And here's the thing. It's it's really not about my strength. Because once I've clicked together, it's nothing for me to break them apart. But the problem is, is how quickly I'm caught off guard. It's not my strength that's the issue. It's the speed of the force. You see, the issue with most sexual sin is not that you are too weak. It's that you're too slow. And that's why the father here says, do not depart from this path. Do not go near her house. Stay away. Stay far away. Keep much distance so that this does not quickly take you. You see, consider the kind of three token cases of sexual sin in the Old Testament. In the face of sexual sin, King David was not delivered by his power, nor was Samson delivered by his strength, but Joseph was spared by his speed. When he feared he got too close, he fled. He didn't try to resist, he didn't mount a defense, he stayed far from it. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. Consider, what does this look like in your own life? Perhaps do we think that we of all people can walk through this neighborhood and stay pure and safe? Where the father who loves you more than anything in scripture says, flee it. Do not go near it. Stay on my path. What would it look like for you to take some steps back from where you are and to move closer to God's path instead of trying to maintain God's ideals on a road that is far from God's place. 
If I could tell you, I haven't been in ministry very long, but in my own ministry and in reading books, seeing what's on TV, the sad story of sexual sin is that most stories begin with the phrase, it all happened so fast. Stay far from it. Do not go near it and be brave enough to flee from it. Why? Because look at what awaits those who go to her door. Utter ruin. I remember going to seminary and taking a class from Todd Miles. Some of you have heard Todd preach here at our church. And uh, in seminary, you're always looking at this wonderful theological truth of joy in the gospel. When it comes to lust, there are wonderful motivations that what God holds out is better. It is great. But I remember in this one class at the end of my seminary career where he said, stop thinking theologically about this. He says, yes, it is better to choose God. But make no mistake, sexual sin will ruin your life. It will take away your family. It'll take away your relationships. It'll take away your job. It will take away your money. Don't be dumb. No one needs a compelling motivation to not touch something that will harm them. But God's good enough to give us both. But do you understand the danger that comes from this? Look, at he gives this list. In verse nine, your honor goes to others. Seems more and more each year. It happened two weeks ago. Another Christian leader, another moral failing, another legacy of ministry stripped because of sexual sin. But it's not just the immaterial burden of honor that is consumed. Maybe you could say, I don't care. I'd rather be a dog and get what I want. But look at what he says here. He says, all of your earned wages, all of your labor goes to the house of another did some research this week, found an article that put together the price of an affair. An affair costs on average $444 a month for apps, for meetup places, for extra meals. And even more than that, in 1999, the private council hired to look into Bill Clinton's alleged sexual misconduct wrapped up a hefty fee of $6.2 million in six months. That's $34,000 a day trying to hide, conceal, and not confess to sexual sin. Sin will rob you of your honor. It will cost you your wealth, but it will also take your life. Look at verses 11 through 14. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So St. Augustine, um, we met him last week. He was quite the philosophical ladies' man prior to his conversion. And he spent most of his life, starting at the age 16, pursuing women at his leisure. And yet, even before he was converted, he talked about how this had a physical toll on his spirit and on his body. He went on to say this of his sexual foolishness, though he had the life many of us perhaps would dream in our flesh. He said this, with these various and shadowy loves, my beauty was consumed away. He's saying it wasted away my physical spirit. It wasted away my mental fortitude. It wasted away my soul. I never found what I was looking for, but the problem was I always found another thing to look at. It was never ending. It was insatiable and it was consuming and it didn't bring him into a fullness of humanity, but a shell of it. And there'll be a time, at some point for all who walk this road, a tragic end where you realize the wasted life of sexual foolishness. 
And in that moment, you'll notice it's not the woman who gets the blame. It's not the adulteress. It's the man. It's the foolish heart that instead of listening, like verse seven called him to do, chose to not listen. Instead of inclining the ear like the father called for in verse two, refused to be inclined to the many counselors, to the multiple voices, to those who went before and promised that this was destructive. And the result was that even though, like a good Jewish man, this Proverbs 5 man went to the assembly of the righteous, went to temple, there he sat in the congregation, ruined. Knowing his life was a sham, finding no relational intimacy that he wanted with humans, and a problem in his heart with God. He knew in that place, he would know in this room that he didn't belong. But there he sat, robbed, exploited, hurting, and in utter ruin for his foolishness. This reminds me of another story in the New Testament of another son, the prodigal son, the son who rejected his father, cashed out his inheritance, refused to live as a son should live, as the design ought to be, and spent what dad gave him on whiskey and women. This man had a moment like Proverbs 5.14.2, where he sat in a pig pen so hungry, so penniless, that his greatest dream was that the pigs wouldn't, or wouldn't eat all their dinner, that he could have some of their slop but he knew he wasn't even entitled to that at this point. And in that moment, he realized that there was only one solution. Just go back to dad's house. To live life as he ought to have lived. He pieced together his apology. He was gonna be content to just work as a servant in the father's house. But as he goes back before he could finish his scripted apology, the dad says, throw a feast. I'm so glad you're here. This is where you were meant to live. This is the abundance you were meant to have. And here in this assembly today, to very degrees, each and every one of us might be this man in Proverbs 5, 14. Ruined, knowing what our hearts have chosen. Crushed, knowing what our eyes have consumed and what our minds are capable of regurgitating at will. Trapped by what seems to be a defining legacy of foolish errors, that not only change our hearts, but perhaps even have an influence in our physiology. We might feel alone, without hope, without promise for deliverance, without any shot at joy. But what can bring you out? Only this Father. Only a God this good. What's going to bring this man in Proverbs 5 out? Part of it is this discipline and this warning. But it's also the joy that comes in living as the Father has designed. The prodigal son was not meant to live, or the prodigal son was meant to live as a child of the Father and not as a beggar to pigs. So too is a spouse meant to live in freedom to his spouse and not in slavery to lust. And we're going to circle back to the way in which God delivers us from this sexual foolishness. But first, we're going to see our second point today. And this is in contrast to the danger of faithlessness, we see the delight of faithfulness. This is where we're going to have all of those tendencies to make this awkward, but let's not, okay? So we're going to read Proverbs 5, 15 through 23. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For a man's ways are before the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. 
the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Now there's a lot of imagery in this text. You don't need to sit down and parse it all out, though you could, to know at face value two clear things that God is saying in this text. First, God cares about sex between a husband and a wife. In fact, it is a command in this text for the husband to rejoice in the nudity of his wife. But then secondly, not only does God care about it, but sex between a husband and a wife in marriage is a wonderful gift from God and an intoxicating joy. The Bible is pro-intoxication in this lens. It wants you to be enraptured in this. In fact, what he's talking about here is you will become so intoxicated with this faithful wife that it is nothing more than strange or odd or completely out of place to think about being intoxicated with the forbidden wife. In this sense, it is a grace. And this is the part where he calls us to think both more about sex and less about sex. First, God made us creatures with a capacity for sex, and it is God's joy when we are able to use that gift in the way he designed it, which is in marriage between a man and a woman. And the church shouldn't be squeamish about this. That's not to say we should be lewd or loose or coarse with how it is discussed. In fact, quite the opposite. But it shouldn't be odd to include this aspect of our humanity, which God, our creator, gave us, and to include it in our discussions on discipleship and marriage. And here's my hope for this church, that as a young church, we have lots of people who will go on to need help in this area, because we have newly married people who are coming to this topic, not as experts, but as novices learning together. But if that is going to be the case, because that is how God designed it, and there's hope for those who come with expertise in areas you ought not have expertise. God is big enough to handle that. But if we want to hold up as something to be cherished, God's design for that, this, this is not just on them, this is on us to help people think about this in a godly way. To not shame what God has called us to speak into clearly, lovingly, helpfully, and with a keen grasp on the gospel. We should be a church mature enough to deal with these issues in the context of discipleship at the level fitting for both, the, for both parties. Otherwise, we risk letting culture disciple our church in an area where it has no legitimate claim to do so. Our culture does not ponder the path of life because it is blind to God. And so as Christians, we choose to show that in every area of our life, including marital sex. Sex is important to the Christian. Sex needs to be spoken of in the church. How serious? Well, there's this, uh, it's, kind of this common legend that in Puritan churches in early North America, if a wife went to the elders and said that her husband was neglecting her husbandly duties to her, that if the husband refused to correct this, he would be excommunicated from the church. That's how serious this is to God. That's how serious this ought to be to the church. That this is good that we ought to know this, that we ought to think right thoughts about this. And we ought to care what the experience is in our married families. As a church, let's not be ashamed to talk of sex's joys and also of sex's abuses so that we might be warned. Husbands and wives in here today, your frequent and joyful sexual intimacy is a gift from God that should remind you in that moment, and for the whole of your life, that everything is better how God designed it to be. That God is after your joy. And if this one area proves it, the rest of your life will be even more astounding to follow in it. You see, just as lips confess, so too does marital intimacy. Maybe a conversation you can have with your spouse after this, 
just a casual conversation over lunch, is what does your marriage bed share of your view of God? What is it communicating about your desire to treasure the things of God and live life according to his design? Now here, the solution here is not fixing the amount of more or less, but instead understanding that even intimacy is connected to following Jesus. Everything comes back to seeing the joy that God has in winning us back to his design in Jesus. And yet this is also where we learn to think less of sex. You see, the answer to the call of sexual sin is not only marital sex. Wives, do not think that if you have enough sex with your husband, you will keep him from sexual sin. Do not think that if your husband sins sexually, that that's failure on your part. Remember the wife in this text. It is Lady Wisdom herself. She is perfect, faithful, satisfying, and yet the fool still erred. And look at where he places the blame. It wasn't on this, this prudish notion that his wife was not willing. Look at the blame he gives, the man gives from the mouth of the fool himself. Verse 12, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. It was his fault. The problem is not the failure of lady wisdom. The problem is this, that despite how good God's intentions are for the world, sinful hearts still wander. Our hearts are foolish. Charles Bridges, old seminary professor and a uh, commentator said this on this text. He said, where contentment is not found at home, drinking out of our own cistern, it will not be found abroad. In other words, this is what he's saying. If the sex you have with your wife is not enough to solve your sin issues, and it won't be, then maybe sex isn't ultimate then maybe it's not the sexual dissatisfaction that's your problem in life. And instead, it's your dysfunctional heart. Maybe if you're not content with your own cistern, with your own wife, it's because you've tried to make sex into a God when God has actually offered himself to you in the gospel. Sex doesn't save us from the bitter end which might follow the sexually foolish but Jesus can. Our savior is God over our hearts and sex and our spouse is not. You see the word translated in Proverbs 5 is forbidden. The forbidden woman is just the word strange. Going after this woman is strange when we're married to wisdom. It's out of place, it doesn't make sense and yet the fool still does it. In Deuteronomy, God is reminding his people of his intimate care and love for them. He says, I heard you in Egypt and I brought you out. I brought you out past the Red Sea. I led you with my presence at night in a cloud during the day. I gave you manna from heaven. I provided you quail. I gave you water from the rock. Do you see my faithfulness? And yet time and time again, Moses says that the people of Israel went after gods they did not know. Gods who had no record of faithfulness to them, but were only served when they chose to forget God's faithfulness to them. And in Deuteronomy 32, in the conclusion, he says that Israel provoked God to jealousy by going after strange gods, forbidden gods, adulterous gods, the problem wasn't with God's faithfulness, for God is faithful to his people. The problem is with foolish hearts, unfaithful and unwilling to stay true to God's design. In our sexuality and in our spirituality, unless the heart is fixed, we will always eat the strange fruit of foreign gods, and it will pain us. 
Augustine reflected on this division of his heart and his actions, but then he said this. He said, I was in the habit of satisfying an insatiable appetite and it tormented me while it had me, held me captive. And there I was until you, O Most High, not forsaking my dust, did come to my help by wondrous and secret ways. The wondrous and secret way is God's way in scripture. We see this. What's interesting is ponder the path of life, ponder the path of life. But in verses 21 through 23, God is pondering the path of life. He says, here's what I see. The foolish will always trip in sin. They'll be led astray and die by their lack of discipline, by refusing to stay on my path. But this is where the wondrous and secret ways of Jesus give hope to the sexually and the spiritually foolish. You see, there's this wonderful transformation of person, but the same illustration of marriage that is held in all of scripture. And it goes like this. In the Old Testament... God's wisdom is personified as the perfect wife able to satisfy and hold us forever. But in the New Testament, God's wisdom is the incarnate Jesus Christ who becomes the husband, who not only unites us to himself in joy, but actually comes to cleanse our foolish, broken hearts who actually comes to wed us, not in the flesh, but in the heart, in the spirit to change us, to clean us, to keep us pure. Look at Romans 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word are you a Proverbs 5.14 fool right now? In thought or in deed, ruined by what sin has taken and you have freely given. Look at this husband who does this so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Proverbs 5 is showing the joy that comes from sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife, but ultimately it is showing that the fool at ruin in the congregation is finally and fully satisfied by this spouse, by the one who takes foolish, faithless feet and does something about it. There is an intoxicating joy and an overwhelming intimacy that knows that Christ became all of our faithlessness. That Christ took on the grossness that we feel as we sit in these seats, giving away our honor, robbed of our wealth, aching in body and soul. Christ did that for you because he loves you. And he wants you to realize that living life in that love is exactly what God designs for you. That in this, we rejoice and we find everything to be exactly what Proverbs says it is. Strange, unneeded, unnecessary. For we have found the faithfulness that satisfies. So what do we do with this text Married, single, male, female, young or old, we take our heart to this husband. We go to Jesus with the full weight of our sexual foolishness and we give it to the spouse who can do something about it and bring us into a greater sense of intimacy with him. We watch him wash away our shame and we see the path laid bare, walk in it. Do not go near the other path. Stay true to me. Trust me. You see, what you think about sex betrays what you think about God. 
And what we experience in the confines of marital sex reminds us of the joyful path that each and every one of you, married or not, can choose today, not by finding sex with another person, but by finding salvation in a husband like this. That if this one thing that happens at one specific time between two specific people is so wonderful, imagine what your whole life will be wed to this husband, walking in faithfulness to this king. Sex only makes sense between a husband and a wife, and this life only makes sense between Christ and those whom he died. So would you pray with me right now that we would be a church in every area of our life, we realize that Christ has loved us better. Christ has been faithful where we have been faithless. And we now get the privilege of going to him with our wounds and being washed by his blood because we have a savior king like this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you work a miracle of washing and of reorienting in this body today. Lord, none of us who are conscient of the matters of sex and sexuality are innocent of sexual foolishness. And Lord, that bite brings our mind, our body, and our soul down to the grave but Jesus can bring us out. Jesus can heal. Jesus can redeem. Jesus can fix our eyes on the promises of God fulfilled in him and say, trust me that it doesn't get better to sin. It is better to obey. Rejoice in the king who has saved you. Lord, I pray the potentially awkward prayer for our church that our husbands and wives worship you well in the bedroom with all humility with all faithfulness with all intimacy understanding that God cares about our weaknesses and about our wounds in that place and that you have given us to be enjoyed a tool as you have designed help us to repent Help us to prepare and help us to live well in light of all you've given us today. We pray this in your name. Amen.